Our passage this Easter Sunday comes to us from Mark's Gospel, the last chapter. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, well, who, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. Easter is, is, a, is a wonderful but tricky holiday at times for religious folks. A lot of people come to church and form opinions about what church is about through that fairly limited sample. Consider the successful and busy businessmen who, who only came to church um, one Sunday a year on Easter morning. Well, one year after his customary visit, he grabbed the, the pastor's hand at the doorway. You know, he shook it. It kind of pulled him close, you know, how some people do. And, and he, he thought, well, I'm going to impart some wisdom on the preacher. He said, Pastor, I don't know how you run your church, but uh, <clears throat> I do know a bit about growing a business. Growing a church can't be too different than growing a business. So I have a suggestion. You might want to consider you know, changing things up a bit around here. Well, how's that? The pastor asked. Well, consider changing your sales pitch every once in a while. Excuse me? Well, yeah, pastor. I mean, I've been coming here for years now, and every time I come, you preach the same message. He only came on Easter. That's Okay, all right. Well, uh, that may not be that funny, but at least the man's error was an innocent mistake. I mean, sometimes Easter brings out less than honorable motivations. Even in pastors and church leaders, consider my friend Reverend Jones. One Easter Sunday, the Reverend Jones announced to his congregation, now his, his order of worship was a little different than we do it here. He, he took the, the collection right before the sermon. And so as he's about to take the collection, he says, my good people, I have here in my hands three sermons. A $100 sermon that lasts five minutes, a $50 sermon that lasts 15 minutes, and a $20 sermon that lasts a full hour. Now, we will take the collection and see which one I deliver. <laughs> of course, we've already received our offering, so I can't offer the full menu of options. You'll, you'll just have to do with what I've, what I've prepared. Easter, it's a, it's a time when we celebrate victory over death and 
hope of life everlasting because of what Jesus has done for us. That makes me think of another story. It happened one Easter that a priest and a taxi driver both died and went to heaven. St. Peter was at the pearly gates waiting for them. Come with me, said St. Peter to the taxi driver. Taxi driver did as he was told and followed St. Peter to a mansion. It had had everything you could imagine from a bowling alley to an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Oh, my word, thank you, said the taxi driver. Well, next, St. Peter led the priest to a rough old shack with a bunk bed and a little old television set. Wait, 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 wait. I, I think you're mixed up, the priest said. Shouldn't I be the one who gets the mansion? After all, I was a priest. I went to church every day and I preached God's word. Well, yes, that is true, St. Peter rejoined. But, but even during your Easter sermons, people slept. When the taxi driver drove, everyone prayed. If I can make Al groan, I have, I have made the mark. Easter, Easter, it raises, it raises significant questions. It's, it's a story about God's love, a, a love that did not consider it too great a cost to send his son to die in our place. It's a story that's, that's given many a sense of purpose, a reason for being. So, so I ask... What drives you? What is your reason for getting out of bed in the morning? Martin Luther King Jr. said, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. What is your purpose? Your reason? For many, it's it's a drive or a desire to make a difference. Consider Helen Bush's poem, I'd Like to Make a Difference. God has placed me, or God has given me a place on earth to be here for a little while. I hope that as I'm passing through, I will make somebody smile. I want to make life easier for all the ones I meet. I ask God for his blessings to the strangers on the street. I hope I'll never fail a child if I can help somehow. I want to be as generous as my resources will allow. And when my life on earth is done, it will be my final plea. Let someone, somewhere, think or say, you made a difference to me. But, you know, we don't, we don't get to control how we're remembered. We can build monuments to ourselves. We can leave behind us writings and papers and speeches. But we cannot control how we're remembered or if we're remembered at all. Because those who write poems, works of literature, or even music are often the the romantic types given to ponder these thoughts and questions, the idea of leaving one's mark, uh, considering a legacy, telling your story, it's, it's been and will be a theme revisited. For instance, the last song from an immensely popular musical called Hamilton. How many of you have heard of it? How many of you have seen it? No? The last song is is titled, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? Sung by the key figures in the story, the chorus, and finally, from the perspective of Alexander Hamilton's widow, Eliza, she ponders her, 
her role in the middle of the dramatic happenings of the revolutionary period and the founding of a nation. She thinks of her, her dead husband, Alexander. And now I'm reading the lyrics to the final song in that musical. She says, I ask myself, what would you do if you had more time? The Lord, in his kindness, well, he gives me what you always wanted. He gives me more time. I raise funds in D.C. for the Washington Monument. I speak out against slavery. You could have done so much more if you had only had more time. And when my time is up, have I done enough? Will they tell your story? Oh, can I show you what I'm proudest of? I established the first private orphanage in New York City. I helped to raise hundreds of children. I get to see them growing up. In their eyes, I see you, Alexander. I see you every time. And when my time is up, have I done enough? Will they tell your story? Oh, I can't wait to see you again. It's only a matter of time. Will they tell your story? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Will they tell your story? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? And as all the lights fade in the theater, except for one small halo of light focused on her face, she steps forward, perhaps looking out to the audience and gasps. Now, the writer of that musical has never really divulged what that gasp is supposed to mean. There's all sorts of speculation. I happen to believe that in the telling of the story of Alexander Hamilton, the creator and writer, Lin-Manuel Miranda, identifies with, with Eliza a little bit. You know, just like all of us do, like who's, who's gonna tell our story? Who's gonna carry on our legacy? What mark are we gonna leave? And he permits her to see that she and her husband are indeed remembered and that their story is told well. Now, friends, we, we are the privileged individuals that carry on the legacy of the greatest man to have ever walked the face of this earth. A singular and central figure, not only in human history, but in the history of the cosmos. He lived. He died. He rose. And we tell his story. But we, as Christ followers, are not the only ones who'd like to tell the story of Jesus, right? Some want to tame him down. Some want to deny the divinity, even question the necessity of the cross and resurrection. So as tellers of the story, we have a responsibility to, to live it out and to tell it well. At Easter, we celebrate the reasonable yet radical resurrection of Christ. And I want to remind you of the raw, real, and amazing aspects of the story by highlighting just a few points from our text. Point number one, the resurrection values, or re the resurrection story raises the value of women, which provides further evidence of its truth. See, Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome, witnesses Jesus' crucifixion. We get this in Mark 15, 40. And then he told us that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, witnessed Jesus' burial at the end of chapter 
15, verse 47. And these, these women then, they serve as witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in contrast to the men. Contrast to the male disciples who fled when Jesus was arrested and in contrast to Peter who denied Jesus three times. Now having women serve as witnesses is unusual because Jewish law does not accept women as witnesses in legal proceedings. That was true of the time and for centuries afterwards. Consider uh, Maomenes. I'm not sure I'm saying that name right because the Jewish people that I know refer to him often as, as his, uh, there's an alliteration uh, that they, they call him Rambam, which I think is kind of funny. It always sounds like a funny, funny name for somebody that's a religious figure in your tradition. But according to Rambam, or Maomenes, uh, this medieval Jewish philosopher, now you've heard of him, even if you don't realize it. Have you heard the saying about um, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, but teach a man to fish, and you'll, that's him. All right, that's Rambam. So you know some Rambam. Yay for you. All right. So he, he, um, he was around in the Middle Ages, and he made a list of 10 persons that were not competent to attest or testify. All right. So in legal proceedings or when you're trying to figure out the truth of a matter. Namely, he said, uh, these are the people that could not testify. Women, slaves, minors, lunatics, the deaf, the blind, the wicked, the contemptible, uh, relatives, and the interested parties. All right, now if I'm a woman hearing that, I'm offended. And in Israel, the disqualification of women as witnesses was abolished by the Equality of Women's Rights Act in 1951. It took that long. So consider all that time before that these are the primary witnesses to the resurrection. Later critics of the church pointed to women witnesses as a reason not to believe the accuracy of this account. However, if the church had been fabricating this story of Jesus' resurrection, it sure wouldn't have fabricated it with, with this little nugget in there, with women being the primary witnesses. Women witnesses, therefore, constitute evidence that this story is in fact true. Point number two of the reasonableness and radicalness of, the, of this resurrection story. The resurrection legitimizes grief and portrays it accurately. The Easter story is at first the greatest tragedy that has ever been. Before it's the greatest heroic triumph that has ever been. The worst that we could do to hurt dismiss or anger God was at the same time the greatest display of his love for us. The grief and the tragedy of, of Good Friday was felt across creation, but especially in the hearts of his followers. So we read there in Mark's Gospel, the 16th chapter, verses 3 and 4, the women come, the women come and they say, Who, who's going to roll away the, 
the stone from the door of the tomb for us, for it was very big. Grief causes our logical, rational brains to just get scrambled up. Have you ever been there? For instance, we can, we can be very capable of a complex or important task in one moment and then totally incompetent of even tying our own shoes without getting that wrong in the next. The women make arrangements to buy spices for Jesus' anointing, having navigated the laws around the Sabbath observance, but forget to enlist help to roll the stone away, which they know is going to take at least several large men. And they knew it was in front of the tomb. I mean, they were there when they saw Christ buried. They saw where they laid him, were the words that we get at the end of chapter 15. When I've worked through my own grief and been close to someone else who is, I, I'm not amazed at the foolish things they might do. Those, those things that don't seem logical or, or rational, I'm, I'm shocked that they're even functioning at all. So these women, they forgot to ask for help to roll away the stone. Who are they going to ask? The men? They all scattered. Where are they at? having fled in fear. But it turns out they didn't need anybody's help because God had already done it. Verse 4, the second half, looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. There's no mention of a guard here as in Matthew 27 or of an angel having rolled the stone away as in Matthew 28. This verb is in the, in the passive tense. It's the sometimes referred to as the divine passive, passive that implying that God has rolled away the stone. I think that's awesome because in our grief, in our confusion, when we're messing things up because we're, our brains are scrambled and we can't figure things out, God continues to be on the move, orchestrating the divine coincidences that are needed to keep us going. The honest depiction of grief in, in these words that tell this story, well, it helps, helps it ring true in my estimation. Consider that those telling and recording the story are also witnesses then that are going to later try to be convincing others of the truth or the facts of the story. They have the opportunity, in a sense, to kind of clean things up, to make themselves look better, to smooth out the rough edges and the foolish actions of various individuals in the story, should they so choose. But they don't. They tell the story completely, warts and all. And finally, my third point, the resurrection is a promise kept and a promise made. That's why it's awesome. I mean, earlier Jesus promised in Mark 14, 28, he said, however, after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. He made an appointment on his calendar. But between the cross and this promised reunion in Galilee is an empty tomb. Is the present order of things kind of turned upside down. Verse 5 says, and they were amazed. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? 
They were amazed. Consider their emotional state. They're, they're caught up in terrible grief, like we just mentioned. It's very early in the morning. They've gone to the tomb expecting to encounter a corpse. But they find themselves in the presence of a heavenly being. It's no wonder they're afraid. And I think also, too, if you've ever been in a deep grief yourself, sometimes you just kind of get numb. And you kind of go through the paces. So they're there. <laughs> this awesome thing is unfolding in front of them. But I think they're also afraid because they've come to the tomb with a certain expectation. They know death always wins, with the slight exception of Lazarus, right, in the days leading up. But that was Jesus that did that, and now it's Jesus that's dead. Death has always had the final word. Tombs stay closed. Dead folks stay that way. But the tomb that should have been sealed shut is flung open. The battered, bruised, and decaying body of their teacher that should be present is mysteriously missing. And the vibrant young man dressed in white is sitting where the cold body of Jesus should be lying. Don't be amazed, he says. You seek Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, the place where they laid him. Jesus' resurrection represented more than Jesus' return to life. It's, he's more than just another Lazarus. Because after Jesus' resurrection, death will no longer reign supreme over anybody. Because he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. We get that in that 1 Corinthians passage. The first of many who would be restored to life after death. The angel or this young man, as he's depicted here, goes on, he says, but go, tell the disciples and Peter, he goes before you into Galilee, there you will see him, as he said to you. Now the disciples fled when Jesus was arrested, we covered that, and Peter denies Jesus three times. So this instruction to the women is, it's an extension of God's grace. Jesus has forgiven these men and will maintain his special relationship with them in spite of their failure in the hour of crisis. And this last verse, and it really is the last verse in Mark's gospel, though you probably, if you've got a Bible, you have words after verse 8. It reads, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Period. End of Mark's gospel. Now there are other words that are added on, but almost every biblical scholar agrees that they are later editions. They are not, they're not truly canonical scripture. And I haven't got a problem with that. These women were afraid, so they said nothing to no one. It's, that's how it actually reads, nothing to no one. Right, which is a double negative now, rather than that meaning the positive. In the Greek, that means that's for emphasis. Like they really didn't say anything to anyone. 
This differs from Matthew's account where they ran to bring his disciples' word, Matthew 28, 8. And in Luke's account where they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And, and in John's account where Mary Magdalene has found the open tomb and, and ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That was John. His gospel. So this is clearly a mistake. It's proof that it's all made up. Right? I don't think so. First of all, the Gospels portray the male disciples as, as unfaithful once Jesus is arrested. Mark's Gospel now portrays the women as unfaithful as well. That fits well with our understanding that nobody comes to Christ without fault, without blemish. We all need forgiveness, even these women who have displayed tremendous courage up to this point. They too fall short of perfection, and well, that certainly has the ring of truth to it, doesn't it? I think this lends itself as an argument for authenticity. Remember, Mark's gospel is the first to be written. It's tight, it's compact. Not a lot of editorial comment. And being written first, it, it would have been that gospel which would have been first to be shared by a lot of those people that are part of that 1 Corinthians 15 reference that, that Paul makes. Second, if you're going to make something up, if you're going to try to push a bogus story on an unsuspecting public, you're going to make sure that you got your story straight. Did you ever get caught in some shenanigans with a, with a buddy or with a, a playmate or maybe a brother or sister growing up? <laughs> no, never. Never got caught anyway, right? <laughs> but if you do get caught, you're going to make sure you, as, as well as you can, before you get interrogated, you're going to make sure you got your story straight. <laughs> and your witnesses should, should agree that the story should be simple. All right, not a lot of details, because you get lost in the details. And what you do tell should be in agreement 100%, present the same viewpoint. Any difference in eyewitness accounts will be picked apart by critics. Um, well, at least that's what would happen in court, right? You watch the, the court shows, that's usually what they do. They just kind of pick at those little threads, and the next thing you know, the whole story's unraveling. Consider this helpful explanation from Scientific American in an article called Why Science Tells Us Not to Rely on Eyewitness Accounts. Now, those that have been involved in law enforcement probably know this already, but the uncritical acceptance of eyewitness accounts may stem from a popular misconception of how memory works. Many people believe that human memory works like a video recorder. The mind records the events and then on cue plays back an exact replica of them. On the contrary, psychologists have found that memories are reconstructed rather than played back each time we recall them. The act of remembering, says eminent memory researcher and psychologist Elizabeth F. Loftus of the University of California, Irvine, says, it's more akin to putting puzzle pieces together than retrieving a video recording. Even questioning by a lawyer can alter a witness's testimony because fragments of the memory may unknowingly be combined with information provided by the questioner, leading to inaccurate recall. So the fact that there are apparent disagreements in the details and the timeline of who knew what and when in the gospel accounts is a testimony to their veracity, 
not their inaccuracy or falsification. The truth is messy and sometimes jumbled and fully relational, just as the one who conveys truth himself. If the story sounds too neat, clean, and sanitized, it probably is. But the gospel is gritty, real, and the truth is in the person of Jesus and how he has changed us, how he changed those original disciples, how he changed those to whom he appeared in resurrected form, how he changed those that heard the gospel through the original disciples and apostles. The alternative endings to Mark's gospel and the fact that later gospels were in some ways written to expand upon or replace Mark's gospel serve to remind us of an important truth. The resurrection of Jesus was not the end of the story. It was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. Do you have your reason for being? Or how will you be remembered? Or how do you wish to be remembered? If Easter teaches us anything, it's that not even death can stop God's purposes in redeeming you and me, indeed the whole world. No, the story isn't at an end for any of us. It is just beginning. And when my life on earth is done, it will be my final plea. Let someone, somewhere, think or say, you made a difference to me. Let us pray. Father God, in Jesus Christ, you have made all the difference in the world to us. Your death has forgiven our sin. Your resurrection has transferred your righteousness to us making a way for life everlasting. And your life indwells us and makes possible a life lived in step now with the Spirit. We accept it. We believe it all, not as an abstract concept, but as a lived reality for us right here, right now. May you be our reason for being. May you be our legacy. In you we live, we die in order to tell your story. Make us faithful so we can make a difference for others. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.